You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. So today, um, I want to talk about the kingdom of God, and I want to talk about community. Um, we will not be here for like two hours, although we certainly could be. And um, I, not, not that I don't try, by the way, um, but Jim says, rein it in, buddy. Um, so I want to I talk about the kingdom of God, and I want to talk about community. And this, it's, this is not intended to be a comprehensive uh, work on kingdom theology or on community formation or anything like that. My heart this morning is that as as a, as a people who are gathered here, like offering up songs of worship to our good God and Savior, Jesus the Christ, that we would see with Mark that Jesus is the one through whom God realizes his kingdom community. And so just to um, prepare our hearts for this and really for the culture of our church, um, I'm just going to pray and uh, we're going to get after it. Father, we, um, we recognize that you are good. And sometimes we have to say that aloud. Let, those, let the reality of your goodness come forth from our lips because the circumstances of our lives feel far from your goodness. And so, God, we, just, we declare that you are good. This isn't a new declaration, but we are reminding ourselves of what is already true. That, God, you have come to us in your son. You have given us the gift of your spirit. You have poured out your love to us through your spirit. And you have empowered us through your spirit. And and now your word has come to us to remind us of your goodness. So, Father, I just pray this morning that wherever we are at collectively and wherever we are at individually, God, that you would, would stir our affections for Jesus, that you, Spirit, would convict us of sin and righteousness alike so that we would know that we have great comfort in our King Jesus. So, God, we pray that we would have um, willful, and re- like willful hearts to receive. So I, just, I pray against the hardness of hearts like, that, that may be in this room right now that, God, you would help us to receive what you have. Amen. Amen. So to help us uh, enter into this bulky conversation on kingdom and community and really the way of Jesus, I I just want to start us out by asking a question. And so the, the question I would submit to you is, what do you think Jesus was going around saying when he was out uh, doing his thing, like in the northern part of Israel, in, in the Galilee? So what, what did Jesus go around saying? And now I know you're a chatty bunch, so you don't have to shout it out. That was sarcasm. Um, so, so, uh, but if you're a note-taking type, write that down. What, what do you think Jesus went around saying? And maybe your thoughts are, are kind of jostled between, well, there's Jesus' words on enemy love, oh, but there's, there's also those really intense encounters that he would have with the religious folk. Gosh, so I, I don't know, love and like intensity, I, I, like wherever you're at, whatever comes to your mind when you think about the words that Jesus was saying when he was going around, these words, uh, they say a great deal about how you understand Jesus. They, see, they say a great deal about how you actually relate to Jesus and how you perceive his words and work in the world. And, and yet, the question that comes to us today from the gospel according to Mark is, what did Jesus actually say? Like, what were the words, and more, more specifically, what were the words of first importance to Mark? 
And this is what our, our teaching text actually leads us to, is, is, are, are these specific words in Mark 1.15. So go there. If you, if you have your Bibles, you can flip on over there, or you can turn your Bibles on and tap on your way to Mark chapter 1. But this is, this is the Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth speaking, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, for some reason, um, when we think about what Jesus went around saying, myself included, these words are not the first thing that come to mind. And yet these are the very first words that are on Jesus's lips in the gospel according to Mark. And, and so what are, like, what are we to do with this? Well, well, I think what we're to do with this is, is we're actually to pay attention because this is like a paraphrase of what Jesus is saying here is pay attention. Trust the good news that the kingdom of God is near us. Because when Jesus says this, he's saying this while he's near to people. So for him to say the kingdom of God is near us, he's saying, I am near you. And this is what we constantly find on Jesus' lips. This is what we constantly see on display in his actions. And, And yet another question extends from this initial question is like, what in the world do we do with a Jesus who some 2,000 years ago was walking around northern Israel, like in the region of the Galilee, proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand to a bunch of people? Well, I, I, this, this will be the question that we're going to lean into. But to answer this, we need to do a, first, uh, do a few things first. And so um, if this feels a little bit teachy, um, it's, it's because it's going to be. So uh, as I said, gird up your loins, church. Here we go. Um, the first thing that we're going to need to do is we're just going to need to talk honestly about community here in Des Moines. And, and then uh, we're going to need to um, have some clarity on what we're talking about when we're talking about the kingdom of God. And lastly, uh, we're going to need to like, get some distance from this. And by that, I mean we're going to need to go up to about 30,000 feet just to get a view of the story that makes sense of these words that are on Jesus' lips. And so uh, without further ado, first, community. And I, man, I don't, I don't know how intensely you have felt this over the past couple of years. Like some of us have come into the Gateway Church here recently, myself three months ago. So some of you today for the first time. But uh, over the past two years, we've seen a lot of stuff go down. We've, we've seen our uh, founding pastor resign. We've seen like one of the founding members of our church die tragically in a car accident. We've, we've seen people who like God has given this gift of life and in this birth, but like this sweet little baby boy, Daryl, like now he's back in the, like in the hospital. Like what is going on? There's just been all of this stuff swirling in this place that is our church. And you see, there's all of that. And then there's this, that the prospect of living into community is just hard it, because it's vulnerable. So the prospect of living into authentic community where you're, like, you make yourself known to others, it's, it's risky. And more than that, it starts to confront our conceptions of freedom. See, we, we may not verbalize it this way, but for many of us, when we talk about freedom or when any, any of the political pundits talk about freedom, what, what we're actually talking about is the ability to freely choose how we want to live. And so what that means is there's nobody outside of myself telling me what to do or when to do it. Because this is the true American dream, if you haven't figured that out yet. So no outside authority. 
And in fact, uh, in the scriptures, this is what the Bible will go on to define as the human kingdom in rebellion to God, but we'll get, we'll get to that. Hold, hold on tight. It's going to be good. So this, this freedom, this freedom actually creeps its way into the church, this conception of freedom. But in the church, um, we don't say it quite that bluntly. We say things like this. We say, well, God told me to do this. And generally, we say God told me to do this to justify things that we know are opposed to his way and will in the world. But we say God told me to do this because that's the ultimate trump card. Like, who's going to argue back with you? Well, God told me to do this. Well, okay. And so we lay that one down. But if, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, then you don't actually feel this impulse to justify your desire to live according to your own rule and reign. You just say, I feel this way. And then you expect the world and everybody around you to either get on board or get out of your way. See, inside and outside the church, we have this, this core desire to define what our own rule is going to be. We want to choose what we want to do, and then we want those around us to celebrate our choices. Essentially, we want other, those around us to celebrate our truth. You see, but something happens when, when we start to get close to one another. Even in a space like this, when we start bumping up to one another, I've, I've made this statement multiple times. I'm going to do it again today. This is part of the reason why there's ropes back there. It's, it's kind of like to corral you all closer together so that you actually can hear one another sing. So you might, uh, like when you turn around to do the passing of the peace, which we, we like declare this, con- like we confess our sins, we're, there's this like assurance of pardon, and then we turn to one another and we assure one another the peace that we have in Christ. It's so you don't have to go like 10 rows away to do this. But something happens even in a space like this when you start to bump up against one another. See, so you start bumping into one another's truth claims. You start bumping into another one of those expectations and feelings and desires. And, and then what you start to realize is that what the person sitting next to you thinks about community is really about you being there for them. But then the person behind you thinks that community is primarily about friendship. And then the person on the other side of you thinks that community is something entirely different. And so you're left just wondering, well, what then is community? And what's exposed in that moment even in this church, is that we don't share a common story. And yet the very definition of what it is to be in the community of Jesus is to share a common story. And yet if we have failed to agree on this, I think we're more like a crowd than we are like a community. And a crowd in the gospel according to Mark is a dangerous thing. Because a a, a crowd is going to follow Jesus, but they're not going to trust Jesus. A crowd is going to seek out a miracle from Jesus, but they don't want to follow him when the the going gets tough. Because the crowd is going to be the people who, like, scream Hosanna, but then also scream persecute him. or, Or, like, crucify him. See, a crowd doesn't share a common story with one another or with Jesus. And so what is this common story? Like, what is this thing that could unite us? Well, the answer is this. It's, it's the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand and that it's at hand in Jesus. The kingdom of God is the reality that can unite us as a community. See, because in Jesus, we, we can begin to slowly let go of our own selfish definition of community. And then in Jesus, we can begin like, to cling tightly to how he sees our community. Because in Jesus, there's actually space for all of that stuff. 
But in Jesus, we begin to like loose our grip of control and then slowly but surely cling tightly to him and how he defines community. But this begs the question, if it is the kingdom of God that has the power to unite us in community, then what is the kingdom of God? What is this thing that has come near according to Jesus? Well, this leads us to the kingdom. So a a Bible scholar uh, named Scott McKnight, a person way smarter than myself, uh, he he has this book called Kingdom Conspiracy. Um, And and in Kingdom Conspiracy, Scott McKnight, uh, he outlines five basic ideas that when we think about kingdom ought to shape our understanding of kingdom. So anytime you encounter kingdom on Jesus's lips, uh, like Scott McKnight's a Bible guy. So what he's doing, he's going from page one to the end of the Bible. He's going in those, those spaces in between the two testaments, those 400 years of silence from, from God and the prophets. Like he's going in to look at the, like the religious writings. How was kingdom understood? What did people say? And this is the distillation that he's come to. It says, first, in order... Uh, for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. Because with, without a kingdom, there is no king and vice versa. And second, there must be a rule for that king. Because a kingdom is not solely like rulership. It's, it's not just the reign, but it is the reign of a king. And, and specifically, it's, it's, it's multifaceted. Because in the, in the story of the scriptures, the king is going to be a person who redeems or rescues a people and then governs those people justly. So a king is not just a figurehead. Like if you watch the crown, it's not like the queen giving away power to like parliamentary procedures or anything like that. But it is the one who reigns and rules in their kingdom. And this brings us to our, our third idea that in order for the king to be reigning or the king to be ruling, there must be a people there. And in the Old Testament, these people are Israel. And in the New Testament, these people are the church. And uh, that's not to say that the church has replaced Israel, but rather that in the, like this beautiful story of God redeeming and restoring all things, that he has grafted the church in to, to come alongside the people of Israel to display the glory of God, to show the sweet mercies of God. So this is, this is the people. And, and so this is neither Jew only or Gentile only, but this is because in Jesus, like he's knocked down the dividing wall of hostility. So he has this new people who are living under the lordship of Jesus. And this is, I just want to lean in here because our, our, I think our political climate calls for it. But the king's people, the king's people are not Americans. Neither North or South. The king's people are not white Europeans. They're not North Africans or South Africans. They're not Africans or Asians, but rather the king's people are those, any people who have been redeemed, that is rescued by the king and now live under the lordship of that king. And yet to live under the lordship of a king, we need clarity. Like what is this rule? So McKnight says we need a fourth thing and that is an expressed and known will. And in uh, the Hebrew Bible, which is just your Old Testament, the first five books in there is called the Torah or the teaching. And the Torah is the place where God's will is expressly known. And when you move forward into the New Testament, you see Jesus reflecting on the Torah, especially in the gospel according to, to Matthew in chapters five through seven, it's this beautiful thing called the Sermon on the Mount, which really is like the, the full expression of God's rule and reign according to Jesus. And 
And so what you have there is you have the Torah, you have the Sermon on the Mount, and later on the apostles will, will pick up from all of this and they'll, they'll talk about keeping in step with the Spirit. All of this is God expressing his will to his people. And yet, you have a king, you have a rule, you have a people, you have a will, but it's all for naught if it's not in a place. You see, it was, it was God who put on flesh and entered into this space because he cares for the earth. He put, Jesus put on a body, and so there must be a place. Because there's no king without a physical space wherein that king rules. If there's a king with no space, that's just Twitter. That's just like people reigning according to their own will on the internet. So these five ideas, these emerge from the scriptures, and they're meant to shape our imagination about God's kingdom. And what that means for us today is that when Jesus comes on the scene and he says that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent or turn, do an about face and believe or trust in the good news. What that means is that we must ask, what are you talking about, Jesus? See, this story doesn't come out of, out of nowhere. Like Jesus didn't just boom, like appear. But no, he was, if you can remember, all the way back to Christmas. Jesus came all those months ago. Jesus came in simplicity and humility as a babe. He was born into this, into this world. He, he grew in knowledge and wisdom and stature. He came, he received the baptism of John, which is this baptism, this immersion into the renewal movement of God. He goes and the spirit like comes, the heavens are torn open, like the voice of the father comes, like affirmation of his identity, of his love, all of this. And then the spirit who's filled Jesus drives him out into the wilderness for the testing of his identity. And now Jesus standing fully affirmed in who he is and who he belongs to, he comes and he makes this claim. So this, this, this Jesus doesn't come out of nowhere. And so when these words are on his lips, we, we have to ask, where did this story come from? Like, wh where does this concept of the kingdom actually emerge from the scriptures? And so this brings us to the story. Because all of this story is packed into Jesus' words. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to just... We're going to do this flyover through the scriptures just to see how this story takes shape in the people of God, who Jesus saw himself a part of. So if you do have your Bibles, uh, turn with me uh, to page one. And depending on your formatting, it may be page two, as it is in mine. Uh, so Genesis chapter one, verse 26. But before we get there, what we see in the first chapter of Genesis is God as this royal artist. We see he's, he's creative and wise and powerful enough to speak this world of beauty into existence out of this like dark, swirly, chaotic mess. So the story, the story of the scriptures starts with God's kingship, starts with beauty and goodness. And more than that, God as the creator God, it starts with him giving away. It starts with this, this like a God who loves to share. And so he orders this world. It, it, clearly, he's the author and king of the cosmos, but then he does this thing that's really surprising. He, he begins to give away this authority and he installs these co-rulers and plants them in a place, in a garden. And like right now, I feel the tension of wanting to give that away because I have this small human at home who my, my wife Jessica and I were trying to like 
point him to Jesus and like what it is that God is the giver of good gifts and so we get to give things away. So we're talking about sharing. It just, his, his, it's his, it belongs to him. And yet this is like God's posture is entirely different. And this is what we read in, in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock of all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And look at that first part one more time. Let us make man in our own image. That, that, that could be translated, let us make humanity in our own image after our own likeness. So right here, God gives away his authority to humanity. This is, this is how the story begins, with a humanity commissioned by God to steward creation, which is essentially to draw out the creative potential that's all around them. And so if you're like a four on the Enneagram, if that means anything to you, then all, like everything looks like it has creative potential for you. You're like, yes, I get this. For the rest of us, we need your help. But, but for humanity, right then, it's just like, no, this is, this is what they're doing. They see that creation is chock full of potential and they're called to draw it out. And the word that is used to signify that is this word dominion. Seems like, feels like a little bit of a disconnect, doesn't it? Because dominion today is a kind of an authoritative rule. It's about having your boot on someone's neck. That's actually how the word might be used later on. But in this moment, this is the idea of rulership. It's, it's that you're drawing out the potential. And if any of you have ever gardened, you know that you have to pull a few weeds. Like if you leave a space of land to itself, it might produce some stuff. But as soon as you get in there and you begin to till the soil, as you begin to push back the weeds in that space, then you're cultivating, you're drawing out the goodness of what's to be had there. And so there's this beautiful potential there, and yet there's also this weighty responsibility because chalked into this, like packed into this little verse here, is this idea of a vocation. And, and it's a divine vocation, we're told. It's one that's connected to the image that we bear. And this would have been scandalous. Like if, if um, the people of Israel brought this account of their creation story to like maybe their Egyptian or their Canaanite neighbors, they would have been like, no, 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 no. This doesn't make sense because in the ancient Near East, bearing God's image was understood to be a specific thing, not a universal reality because it was reserved for the king. And so what would happen is you would, you would have, like, like we have this little image that's gonna come up. Uh, you would have this picture of a God who's bestowing their godness to this king. Now the king is gonna turn towards the people to represent that God to the people. So as the people serve the king, they are in turn serving the God. But the God of the Hebrew people, Yahweh says, this is not the case in my kingdom. All people, this is female and male, young and old, dark and light, everybody, irrespective of who you are, you bear my image. And as my image bears, that means you represent my rule and reign in the world. This is scandalous. And therefore, when Genesis talks about image and when Genesis talks about dominion, it's talking about kingdom. And it's talking about a kingdom that like these people with like mutual love and mutual submission and, and like contributing together out of their giftedness are drawing out the potential of God's world. And yet this immediate tension presents itself in the story. And is it like, will humanity receive God's vision for flourishing? Or will they seize their own definition of good and bad to suit their own preferences? And if you read on, like, how does it go? Not, not so hot, right? 
I mean, I don't even think we have to read on. We just like reflect on our current circumstances. What was this past week like? I, I mean, three decades is not a lot to reference, but I've never experienced more division. It's intense. It's clearly not gone too well. And that's the story that we pick up. So if you read on, this is what you see, that not even three pages later, humanity, they forego God's rule and they forge their own kingdom. They declare autonomy and they they push God's definition of good and bad to the side and establish their own definition of good and bad to serve their own interests. It's as though they want the gifts of the kingdom without the authority of the king. And so they lay it aside. And this, like church, this is the basic conform, like the, the, the basic plot conflict of the entire Hebrew Bible. And this is the place that Jesus sees himself entering into, is this tension of the human heart that desires to raise itself up in opposition to God's way and will in the world. An opposition that the, uh, the Apostle Paul will later go on to call the age of sin and death. Jesus sees himself entering right into the midst of that. And God, he doesn't leave this age of sin and death to like brood, but he, he like he makes an intersection with it. And so in another surprising turn, only like 12 chapters into the book of Genesis, we see that from amongst one of his enemies, God calls out and he invites one of his enemies to receive and trust his purposes. And this person named Abram does. This person receives by faith God's call. And then Abram and then his wife, Sarah, like they become, they're given a new name, Abraham and Sarah. And so Abraham, in partnership with his wife, begins to rule according to God's way. They partner with God to bring about the flourishing of these people according to God's standards, not their own. And they end up becoming this patriarch and matriarch of a whole people called the people of Israel who are called to do justice in God's world. And God literally puts his name on the line because he knows from past experience how humanity does on their own. It goes quite poorly. And so God... And even Abraham himself, this is not here, but he legit tries to give his wife away three times. Like he's walking along and there's this potential conflict. He's like, no, 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 she's just my sister. You can, there you go, sweetie. Like the, the betrayal in that moment. And to this person, to this person, like, like hear this, to Abraham, God says, I'm gonna bless the nations through you. He puts his name on the line to extend blessings to the nations. And sure enough, like these people start to grow and they grow and they're fruitful and they begin to multiply and eventually they're perceived as a threat. They become so numerous in the land that the biggest, baddest human kingdom of the day, Egypt, looks at them and says, what if they rise? Like fear in the heart of the, of the, like the figurehead of this kingdom, Pharaoh, fear wells up. He says, what if they rise up in opposition? What if they join hands with our enemies and turn us over? And so here we have Pharaoh rising up to confront the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. And Pharaoh, you'll notice that Pharaoh's never given a name. And that's because Pharaoh embodies the worst of humanity's rebellion. He's power hungry, he's murderous. He's literally killing babies to secure his wealth. And he's grinding the family of Abraham into the dust. And in response to this, God will not let this stand. He hears the cries of his people. And so Yahweh sets out to remind Pharaoh whose world this truly is. And he raises up a deliverer in this man named Moses 
to challenge Pharaoh's evil. But Pharaoh is so entrenched in his own rule, his own rebellion, that when Moses like calls to release, calls to Pharaoh to release the, the children of Israel from his clutches, he doesn't even know who Yahweh is. And this is, a, this is super fascinating to me, that you can be so entrenched in your own definition of good and evil that you have altogether forgotten God. That, that it's, it's, it's like a fascinating, fascinating look into the isolation of evil because on one hand, you can be so deep in your self-preservation and yet on the other hand, in the depths of your self-preservation, God sends somebody to call you out. This is precisely what Moses is doing. He's giving an opportunity to Pharaoh to, to like relent, to reframe. And yet what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh remains obstinate. And eventually, Pharaoh's obstinance leads to his own death. And perhaps, like, perhaps this is where you're at right now. Like, you're, you're questioning why you're even in a high school auditorium where the church meets. What, what am I doing here? Because you've gotten really good at play acting this Christian life. You know the right things to say, the right things to do at the right times, but your heart is growing harder and harder because you've been praying, you've been crying out, and yet it seems as though God's not really listening because he's not attending to your praise the way that you want. And so your heart is getting calcified more and more, and you feel more isolated like a Pharaoh than you do like a child of Abraham. And if this is true, my plea, like I plead with you right now, do not harden your heart because it's telling what happens next. See, what unfolds is that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, his like power drunk, like self-determined will leads to his destruction. And this is a powerful scene because this figurehead of human kingdom and evil is brought low by God. And yet it's in this moment when evil is brought low in the face of Pharaoh that God's name is exalted. And it's like there's this veil that is lifted because this is the first time that God is called king. And so turn with me to Exodus, where this whole account takes place. So if you're in Genesis, just start turning to the right a little bit. And when you get to Exodus 15, stop. This is Exodus chapter one, or Exodus chapter 15, verses one and two. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna also read verse 18. And right here, chapter 15, is the poetic reflection on like the, the narrative just before. So chapter 15, if you like more of like, give me the facts, Kyle, well then just after church, read chapter 14. This is a song that's being sung about what just took place. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord, Yahweh, is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. You go down to verse 18, you see the Lord will reign forever and ever. And that word right there, that word reign, in the Hebrew is this word malak. And this is the same word that is used for king. We see that it is God who will king, he will reign forever and ever, that the true king of this world has affirmed his reign. And he's done so by rescuing his people from slavery to human corruption in order to live into this new way of freedom. 
And so what it means when God's kingdom comes near is that evil is named and that evil is dealt with and that the people of God live into that. And this is the tension that we find ourselves in. It's that evil has been named. Evil has been dealt with definitively in Jesus on the cross. And now we have to deal with the tension of that, which is living into who and whose we are. And so the story goes on here because God, he knows that there's a tension of living into who and whose we are. And so what God does is just as he put his name on the line for Abraham, he's gonna put his name on the line for all of these people and he's gonna bind himself to them in this marriage ceremony. So he takes them out, he brings them to this like fiery, smoky mountain and then he's gonna make a covenant with them. And when he makes this covenant with them, it's like a marriage ceremony. And he lays out the, his rule to these people. And so we know the big 10 and then the some like 603 that follow or so. Like he lays out, he expresses his will to these people. He says, do you want this? And they agree in unison, yes, we want this. Then they immediately start to like offer sacrifices to other gods. That's a whole nother story for another sermon for another time. But the point here is that this is, this is the tension. So God invites him, he binds himself to them. They agree, and then the rest of the Hebrew Bible goes back between this ebb and flow of the tragedy of Israel like devolving into the very evil they were saved from. Like, have, you, have you experienced this? Like where you have given your, your allegiance, your trust to Jesus, and then you find yourself in the very sin that like you know he saved you from. It's that pattern, that thought that continues to manifest itself in your body and you start to live out of that, this deep sense of shame that then leads to you like, I don't know, like actually hurting yourself. See, that has been cast out in the name of Jesus because fear doesn't reside there. And yet this story, this story is the story that Jesus is entering into because he sees these people in the tension of God's rescue and their sin. of this slavery to sin. And he wants them to be slaves to righteousness. He wants them to be bound to him. And yet they long for like the creature comforts that sin provides. And so when Jesus comes out of the wilderness and he has just had his identity tested and he comes out declaring that the kingdom of God is near, that it is at hand, that it's here, repent, turn and trust, believe the gospel. As far as Jesus is concerned, he is the one through whom God realizes the kingdom. He, like, like he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, that it is at hand through him. And when the kingdom of God is made available, what flows from this is verse 16. So turn back with me to Mark chapter one. Go with me to verse 16. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna read through to verse 20. This is what flows from Jesus' declaration. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So Jesus goes out to a people who call themselves the called of God. 
Picture, picture this. Jesus is now around this, this area called the Galilee. It's the Sea of Galilee there. So there's all of these, um, it's a blue-collar town. There's uh, fishermen, fisherwomen. There's like a, a big quarry. So there's all these masons that are in that area. And there Jesus comes, and he encounters these people along the shore. These people who call themselves the called of God. They know that they're the Israelites, and they know that they are set apart, and yet the way they feel set apart is because they've been maligned in this season. Because for the past 60-ish years, there's been a Roman military occupying force beating them down literally setting up checkpoints where if they hadn't paid their taxes, they will break your kneecaps. They know that their presence in that place is true because God had given it to them and yet it's under siege. It's as as though they're exiles in their own land. And so there they stand and this Jesus of Nazareth comes, this, this rabbi comes and he says, follow me. Jesus is calling out to the ones who call themselves the called of God. This would get your attention because it's God who extends the call. And yet there's also this cultural normalcy, like rabbis would do this thing where they would call people. They would call followers. But just picture this, like this is a power move by Jesus. But if we like tried to get into the mode of Jesus here and in the coming weeks, if we just like walked around, picture, I don't know, your favorite coffee shop, you're going to Dryburg, you're going to Horizon Line or Mars or wherever, like I guess those are all like the fancy ones. Let's say you're going to Caribou Coffee and you go in there and you're like, follow me. So maybe like two people look up from their laptop The kingdom of God is at hand. Follow me. How do you think it'd go? It'd be super weird. It'd be really odd. And yet, as soon as Jesus does this, Mark says what? Immediately. And soon enough, he has hundreds of followers. 12 who become apostles, but hundreds of followers. See, this was oddly powerful for Jesus because he's calling people who've already been passed over. And what I mean is that there they are. If you're mending nets on the shore of the Galilee with, with like, if you're the sons of Zebedee, what that means is that the rabbis have come through and you didn't have the chops. You couldn't take their yoke, which is their teaching. You, you couldn't cut it. And so Jesus, who's coming to the people who call themselves the called of God, and really like the rabbis come to select the elite from that, Jesus comes to the outcast and the rejected, and he says, you and you and you and you follow me. So they get up and they follow him. You see, Jesus sees something in these people that nobody else sees, that that potentially other people refuse to see because it is the passed over and it is the outcast that Jesus wants to follow him. So what is it that he sees? Well, I I think he sees the image of his father. I think he sees the image of God. And I think he sees people who are willing to turn who are willing to trust and who are willing to follow him. And Jesus is now right smack dab in the middle of that tension of a God who calls, who delivers, and is calling a people into a new way of living. Because Jesus' followers would go around 
And they would, they would end up washing their hands without eating. They would, uh, on the Sabbath, a holy day to the people of Israel, they would go around, they would pluck these grains of wheat, the, like the, the, the ears of wheat, and they would begin to eat them. And then the religious leaders of the day, these are both like culturally taboo things. These are big no-nos. And so then these religious leaders, they would come, they'd get all fired up, and they'd come complain to Jesus, and then Jesus would come back with quite a, like a, a strong response to these religious leaders. Uh, go with me to uh, Mark chapter 7 ever so quickly, and because we see some of these responses that Jesus has here. He says this, This people, this is talking about the religious folks, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Or, or he, he might just go on to say this to these religious folks. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. It was like a, oh, moment. You see, when we live under Jesus' kingdom, that means we follow his rule, not the traditions of man. This is a really easy space to get caught up in. So what we do is, is we say, well, our, our, our preference is for our instruments to be electrified and ours is for it to not be. Or ours is for some and known. Ours is for expressive worship. Ours is for um, a humble worship. Ours is for, um, you know, like pure evangelism. Ours is for uh, just having really good Sunday services. Ours, you just, all of a sudden, all we're talking about are the traditions of man and we've lost the Jesus who has come and said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. See, when we follow Jesus, we are not following Jesus according to our own rule. We're following Jesus according to his rule. That is because Jesus is the one who has liberated us to a new life. And that means that Jesus is the one who God is going to realize his kingdom community through. Because Jesus is confronting the conflict. He's, he's, he's confronting the core conflict in the human heart that we all at some level want authority. And I really, like in my life, I don't have to look far for this right now. I made mention I have a small human. Uh, his name's Griffin, and I love him dearly, that little sinner that he is. But, um, man, he has a will. And he will try and exercise his will. And now I, I can, quote, unquote, honor that and let him choose how to make decisions, which, I, I don't know, that we'll talk about parenting maybe some other time. But, like, um, I can let him do his own thing, and it, like climb on whatever he wants, exalting himself to the high places in our house, or I can take him by the hand, I can have him follow me, and I can lead him into a place where the expression of all that he's wired up to be, all of his giftings can give full vent. And right now that means uh, we're doing, making tummy towers, stacking blocks on his tummy. <laughs> This is a beautiful thing. And he's, that's, this is the space of flourishing. And what God is saying is, Kyle, gateway, you are like a toddler. You are like a toddler who is climbing up into all of these spaces with your own effort. And you look out and you say, my kingdom. Yes, I've made it. And you are one step away from your death. You're one step away from injury that's irreparable. You're one step away from a moral failing. So you're playing on the edge of the cliff and God in Jesus, in these moments, he's calling us out and he's saying, like, follow me because I want to bring you into a place of flourishing. See, Jesus 
is, is the one who gives us this common story. Jesus is the one who we can actually come together. Have, have you felt like the pangs of community? Have you ever tried to be in a small group with other people? Hard, is it not? Why is that? Because there's people there. And so when you show up, it becomes difficult. It's not the other person, it's you. And it's all of you showing up into the same space, trying to like envisage your own reality of community, but it's not big enough. It's, it will never be big enough. It might work for a season, but then somebody else will come. It's never big enough. And so we need a common story that is big enough, it's deep enough, it's wide enough to actually draw us together. Our common story is this Jesus bringing the kingdom near. So do you know this King Jesus? Like, are you willing to receive from him? If, if, if you're like, I know Jesus is personal savior, but it's weird for me to think about him as king. Go with me to this little letter that Paul writes to the Philippians. It's this church that he's helped plant, helped get started. And this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter two. I'm gonna read from, verses, uh, from verse six to verse 11. He's, he's talking about Jesus here. So if, if you ever had a hard time imagining who this Jesus is, or, or you think about authority figures and you want to like buck the system, listen to who your Jesus is, who's calling you to follow him. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Jesus that calls out to you. This is the Jesus who humbled himself even to the point of death. Jesus is the one. He doesn't lord it over you like your boss is gonna lord over their middle management position over you. Jesus is the one who is the truly human one who is inviting you to live into a new reality. And yet, in the midst of all of this, you're saying, yes, like I think I really do long for gentle authority in my life, Kyle. I want that, but I'm so tired. I'm so tired. And I think we're all tired. I think we're all tired of trying to figure out how to do this thing in a DIY culture that says you gotta figure out your own religion. You gotta figure out how to parent. You gotta figure out how to do community. You gotta figure out this. You just gotta, hey, be an entrepreneur. Do your thing. And we're just so tired. But we try, don't we? Like we, we try and we try. And I think what, get me like, I, I, I think what we need to start doing is stop trying and then start training. Because we might have, we very well, for the past two years, you could have been trying to follow Jesus, but it's not gotten you very far, has it? Or maybe it's gotten you further than you think, but now you're in this, like, this roadblock. So we need to stop trying and start training. That is, we need to pick up these practices the way of Jesus. We need to start living into who God says we are. So what is it that God says you are beloved? 
What is it that God has affirmed that you are dearly loved by him? What does it look like to live from your belovedness into this world? Well, well, here's one simple thing. It actually looks like because you have received grace, you can extend grace. So the next time that person, you know the one who really gets under your skin, maybe they're sitting next to you, that person, the gift that you have to give them is the grace that you've received. This is what it means to live from your belovedness. This is the, like, so you actually get, you get the gift of giving them the grace that you've been given. This is what it looks like to be, to like to start to live into this kingdom community. And I, I've been teetering and tottering whether to talk about what happened this past week, um, but let's just do it because we're at church. So a botched caucus, a, a state of the union marked with uh, like further division, uh, an impeachment acquittal. Has it been a good week in America? For some, yes. For others, no. But this feels nothing like true freedom to me. This feels like a divided human kingdom. Feels like everyone is hungry for power and prestige and control. It's so all I can do is I say, gateway, like today, Jesus is saying, I want to form you into this contrast community that is marked by my way and marked by my will. And praise be to God that in Christ, there is a way forward because some 2000 years ago, the God of the cosmos broke in to this space to say that the poor in spirit inherit the riches of his kingdom, that the meek and the gentle are the ones who inherit the earth. And that a kingdom of God is where the mercy let the merciful live and the purity abide and the peace abounds. This is ours in Christ. The church is this space that lives under the rule of Jesus together. And this is gonna like be really hard and you might leave and we will receive you back and you might wanna leave again and we will receive you back, but the church is hard and yet Jesus is the one who can hold us together. Not some strategy, not a new membership seminar, nothing like that. Jesus is the one who will hold us together. And I just want to, but like before we come to the bread and the cup, and I know I've, I know we're going long. But do you know that like Christ is with you? Do you really know that Christ is with you? But Paul will say that when Christ is in us, it is the hope of glory. Do you, do you know that the hope of glory resides in you if you are with Jesus? That is the hope that you have in Christ, is to be known, and yes, it's risky, to be exposed, that's probably gonna happen. But there is a deep sense of hope that comes with Christ and his kingdom is not far off. It is near. It is near. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.